Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Josh Clark, and you're listening to Powerful with Jeff Couliard. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Powerful, the podcast where we talk about all things power in the world. And before we get into today's show with a guest that I'm really excited to introduce you to, I invite you to grab the Ultimate Guide to Gratitude. It's something I put together a few weeks ago, and it's basically it's a free PDF with a bunch of resources, TEDx talks, and articles, and books, and blog posts, and journals things to really help accelerate your gratitude practice. And you can get a free copy by texting the word POWERFUL to 1-855-969-5300. And I'll give you that number again at the end of the show. But let's get right into it and introduce today's guest. She's a Canadian woman, a professor, researcher, author, mother, and advocate whose doctoral research really examined the experience of Canadian Muslim women and their mothers. And we really dig into the experience of racism, um, but really on a bigger picture, the dangers of a single story. And so this interview kind of picks up where I left off last week with Colleen Henderson. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can check it out, The Power of Story. This episode is really about the danger of a single story and what happens when we do that. And I first came across today's guest uh, on Twitter, actually. I noticed that she was tweeting a lot about structural oppression and racism and some things that I found really interesting. And we had some mutual kind of Twitter followers or people that we followed on Twitter, and we liked the things that they were saying. And so I reached out to her to uh, jump on the podcast, and she was very gracious and accepted that. And so that's kind of where we pick up today's conversation about her advocacy, her stepping into a role of having a voice as an author and an academic on a platform, very public platform like Twitter, and some of the things that happened as a result of that. And so please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Muna Sala. Maybe tell me a bit more about uh, about the work that you do. You're in the Faculty of Education, is that right, at uh, Concordia? Yeah, okay. at Concordia University of Edmonton. And thank you for that, um, for, for somebody who... And I'm just going to be straight up uh, honest about this is that I've had um, depression and anxiety for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody like me who just prefers and also very, very, very um, introverted in general. <laughs> so for somebody like me to be so outspoken on social media, I, if you told me a year ago, I would I would have even a Twitter account in general. I would have laughed. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what really um, prompted me to do it was uh, actually my publisher because I published uh, a revised version of my dissertation, which was uh, my doctoral research was about the experiences of Muslim girls and their mothers as the girls transitioned into adults, Canadian Muslim girls, like so not newcomers, uh, girls who have grown up here. And so um, the, the publisher said, listen, you need to help us. You need to get on some form of social media here. And so that's why I actually got on and I thought, okay, I'll just do this and then I'll shut it down in a few months. <laughs> and then I just realized, I realized that I had a lot to say and, and that, yes, I do get a lot of, I, I get a barrage of hate. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I don't, mm-hmm. um, but the love and the community outweighs that. Mm-hmm. And so, and that thankfully what I have, what I've had to say has really, um, I feel resonates with a lot of people. Um, and, and what I love about it is that I'm somebody who, especially even in my work, I say that, um, especially for Muslim girls and women, um, people need to stop talking for us. They need to start listening to us. And so uh, this was one way for me to try to also, I, I started to realize that this is obviously a way for me to get my story out there, to get other, to get this perspective that is not often heard and not often recognized um, as important. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's my work so far. Um, that was actually not so, so far. It was actually in my dissertation. And now my work is centering on the experiences of Muslim refugee mothers, of children with disabilities. Oh, wow. And the reason behind that is that my daughter, my youngest, is autistic. And so as I was struggling to, 
to navigate all of these uh, just awful, to be honest, um, and this is me as an educator, somebody born and raised here, somebody who has a PhD, and I felt like I was lost in the bureaucracy mm-hmm. of trying to get her support. Mm-hmm. And then I started wondering, what about somebody who's new? And what about somebody, people who are who fled and, and and just all of the trauma associated with that? How are they getting the supports that they need? And so it's taken me on this journey, and I'm I'm in conversation with mothers right now. Yeah, and do you want to dig right into that? Like, what um, what are you finding? Because you know, as someone who you know, I was associated with the healthcare system in, with addictions and mental health. I was working for a nonprofit, and we would get referrals, and we would, and you know, I had my challenges with the bureaucracy as a kind of a partner to that, and it was super frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it? What? What is it like for immigrant, um, the immigrant community um, navigating our? Systems? Well, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting because it's it's different. I think it's, it's for immigrants and refugees. Right. There's a different, there's the different um, reason, obviously, for them being here. Um, and so for, ref- for the refugee moms, so far, it's a pilot study. So I'm going to be widening it to be um, hopefully across Canada in, uh, in the next few years. So right now, just pilot, there's literally just me and a few months. And I just wanted to see, is, are, is there something that's here? Is there, is there something that I, we need to explore further? And already I know, uh, yes, definitely we need to explore all of all of the complexities that are coming out in just a few stories. Mm-hmm. Sorry, excuse me. <coughs> so what I'm finding so far is that they've got they felt um, pretty supported when they first came here. So for the first few months they were super supported, which is great. Mm-hmm. But now that they've been here a few, um, a few years, each of them, they feel um, almost abandoned. Mm. Uh, because they weren't family-sponsored. They weren't community-sponsored refugees. They were government-sponsored refugees, right. which is a different category, right? Yep. And so with the government-sponsored refugees, you, you're super supported within the first year. And then that support wanes because you're expected at that point to start to just take over and responsibility for your own life or your own livelihood. But the problem with that is is the complexities because that that system relies on people who there's a lot of preconditions that need to happen for that to um, to be successful. Mm-hmm. So for people who are, um, I have a mother, one of the moms is illiterate, uh, even in, in the Arabic language, because they were in a very, very small rural town, in, in a rural village, sorry, in, in Syria. And so her and she and her husband both were illiterate in Arabic. And then to one of the qualifications for becoming a citizen is that you reach level four in English. And so, and as an educator, I know that it is so hard, especially in adult, like for adults. Mm-hmm. Children are, thankfully, like it's children will learn over time. For adults, it's super hard because they don't have that base language that you could then um, convert to a different language to, to start, especially in reading. Yep. And so that's one of them. The fact that they literally at this point are just trying to get literate. Um, another thing that I've noticed is the government housing that they're that they both were were um, situated in um, isn't doesn't account for the fact that their children need adaptable spaces. Uh, so they're they're literally carrying their children up and down flights of stairs, um, and they're because both of them have uh, daughters with cerebral palsy uh, who are who are in wheelchairs. Wow. Um, and so these types of, of, and the fact that one of the moms doesn't sleep because her daughter doesn't sleep at night. And so how is she going to get to school in the morning? And how is she? So all of these complexities um, and, and their funding actually continued funding uh, depends on them going to school. Wow. So all of these things are just, um, just wide, wider issues, including uh, which I haven't even mentioned is their relationship with the school. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times the schools will get a translator, but the translators themselves often um, sometimes aren't even very um, fluent in the Arabic language themselves. Right. They just have a passing kind of familiarity. And so a lot of, a lot of issues and complexities. A lot of structural and, you know, systematic barriers to, to thriving um, that we, that we kind of see. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's interesting from a so from a right use of power perspective, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. around that comes to mind is the idea of status and membership 
um, is, is a type of power. And I think that, you know, that intersection of like refugee, Muslim woman um, with a disabled child, like there's so much powerlessness that accompanies that, that, you know, I'm curious about, um, about your thoughts on kind of that structural aspect of, of power, maybe your own experience and you do a lot of teaching. And so I'm curious about how, how power might not come up, you know, explicitly conversations about power with your students, but I imagine that it's a, it's a theme of, of the work that you do. Um, it certainly is a theme of your Twitter account. So if that's any rec, you know, reflection <laughs> of uh, the, the work that you're doing, um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the classroom at Concordia with students and what the current conversation or discourse is around power? Um, maybe from an educator perspective or from teaching educators um, perspective? Well, it's interesting because, um, so my, so I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. And I think that thankfully I've been, I've been so grateful to be able to make great relationships with students, um, regardless of background, regardless of age, regardless, thankfully we've been able to make those connections. And I think because when I approach my teaching, I do so in a, and I'll say um, it's a way of what Bell Hooks really calls radical love. And because if we don't have that, um, and I wrote a, just literally wrote a paper about this, about how my grandma, who, who is a Palestinian refugee, um, had taught me what, she, what I called her curriculum of Rahma. And Rahma is an Arabic word which translates into mercy. But it also at the root of Rahma is the, is the word Rahim, which is womb. So this idea that if to be truly um, compassionate and loving, we have to be sustaining. We have to be um, holding each other close. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I approach my my pedagogy, my curriculum making alongside students. And so I think they recognize that that I want all of us to thrive. Uh, but to do so, we have to tell the stories that are hard. Sometimes we can't shy away from from difficult topics and difficult issues and especially when you're talking about in classrooms, we do have a lot of powers as educators and to recognize that. And so I explicitly say that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that even as a professor and in front of them, I have a lot of power and I recognize this. And so I try to, I try to, how do you hold, you know, that responsibility? Because I view it as a profound responsibility mm-hmm. because I'm not just teaching them, you know, a subject matter. I am guiding them into the world of education alongside students and families. And I view that as, as immense responsibility. So how do we um, recognize the power that we have while we also um, work with it? Mm-hmm. We use it in good ways. Mm-hmm. So that's how I kind of frame it. And so one of the things that I do is I, one of the very first things in every class that I teach is I, I, I we watch Chimamanda Ngochi Adichie's The Danger of a Single Story. Mm-hmm. And so, because uh, Chiranani Nogochi Adichie talks about how the single story is when people and places and all their complexity are reduced to a single construct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously I use that to frame my research as a Muslim woman, because there's many single stories of what I, ca- what I can be or what I should be. Mm-hmm. Um, from within, on my own community uh, and outside of larger communities. But what I, then I say, what is a single stu- story of what a good student looks like? What is a single story of what a good classroom is? You know, what are these single stories that are living in us and that we might not even realize? And so um, we have really good conversations about these stories. Um, and especially I bring in always an inclusion lens. Mm-hmm. An inclusion not in terms of diversity, quote unquote, which is sometimes a euphemism for uh, race. Well, checklist diversity, um, right? It's uh, it's an yeah. interesting phenomenon. Organizations, you know, you bring in a marginalized community member, and you do a half day training, and you hit you know, check, you know, check the box, and and everybody goes back to oh, yeah, the same. Yeah, old... we're not we're not racist here. Check exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like no, racism is much bigger than that. Yeah. Um, and so that's exactly what I say. So I say is inclusion lens for me is using it from the literature, which is for disabled. Uh, people uh, in communities. And so how do we make sure that we're constantly also checking our own assumptions of what a good student is in terms of from that lens as well, always? Mm-hmm. Because um, what I find is that too often I hear this um, this refrain almost, which is inclusion is not working. Inclusion is not working. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, though, what people are saying is that they're not being supported, Right. 
in, in this effort and the work that we do, and it's difficult. But the thing is, though, what I always say is, what we have to understand is that, yes, we are not supported. Inclusion, like full inclusion definitely needs government support, school support, monetary support, material support. However, the literature actually says that that is not the barrier to an inclusive classroom. Yes, it would definitely, it's needed, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. And I always bring it back to, it's the way that we engage. It's the ways that we are engaging in our classrooms and our schools and our communities. It's whether or not we believe, and I, work, uh, and I draw on Dr. Tim Lorman's work, um, and he, he's, he's actually the president of Concordia, but he, he's published quite a bit about inclusive schools and inclusive education. And he talks about how it's really about whether or not we believe we can do this work. It's about our own a sense of self-efficacy a lot of the time. So how do we get there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I really talk about that. But then I bring it back to Chimamanda Ngochi Adichie always. And I talk about how um, she says, and I'm going to actually, I'll try to find, it's right here in front of me. So I'll, uh, I'll see if I can um, find it. Oh, and she says, and this is in a quote, it is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There's a word, an Igbo word that, uh, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is Nkali. It's a noun that loosely translates to be greater than another. Like our economic and political world, world stories are too, too are defined by the principle in Nkali. How they are told, who tells them, when they're told, how many stories are told are really dependent on power. And so I always bring that back to say, who has the power to tell these stories? Who has the power to retell these mm-hmm. stories? Um, and who was excluded from telling their stories? Who's being silenced here? Whose story is not being told? And so all of these um, these questions in our in the class, and it really gets them thinking. I think at a deeper level, instead of just the um, what um, Kevin Kumushira talks about is common sense. Like we we engage in it with a sense of common sense in our classroom, mm-hmm. and it's quote unquote because it's just there. All of these structures are just there, but they're structures. They, they were brought in. Mm-hmm. They're stories that were made. So how do we move beyond them? There's always something that we're constantly um, grappling with and alongside students in our classroom. Yeah, and that's really resonant of the perspective that we had in addictions treatment. You know, talk about a single story is you've been identified as an addict or someone with depression or like you're a depressed person. That becomes the narrative. And oftentimes it's what's well, a narrative that's been been built and a label that's been affixed by somebody with power and it always comes with you know the the interesting experience for me has been the disentanglement of intention and impact you know it's rare that i meet a leader it's rare that i meet a helping professional who wakes up in the morning and says hey i want to make the lives of some people miserable right i want my students to hate classroom and i want my people to you know struggle and yet it happens and so there's a disconnect between the impact that we're having and the intention that we often bring to the work um and it's getting to the point where it's like, actually, I assume you have good intentions, but I don't really care because if we focus on the impact, like how is this actually impacting the people who are vulnerable? Um, that's what we should, we need to be talking about. We need to be, you know, surfacing those stories, the stories of impact versus the stories of intention, because everyone hides behind their good intentions. And I'm sure I'm guilty of it just as often as the next person not intending to have a, you know, a negative impact on my eight year old. But sometimes I do, right? Like sometimes dad the tone of dad's voice comes out a little bit harsher than it probably should. And, and the, the impact is, <laughs> you know, the impact is different than the intention, right? Any parent should be able to resonate with that phenomenon of definitely. Oh shit. I shouldn't have slammed um, that cupboard door quite so, uh, quite so forcefully. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, that reminds me when you're talking about the intention versus impact. Uh, I was just a couple of weeks ago at this school where I was invited to talk about my work and, um, we had a roundtable discussion with a whole, a whole group of uh, staff at the school. And what it was is because I talk about being explicitly, um, moving from not racist to being explicitly anti- anti-racist in our schools. And how does this look like? And this is a school of, of the majority, uh, with a population of uh, majority indigenous students and families. Um, and so it was really interesting because the, the teaching population was majority white. And so, and even that, saying the word white in many places, that's viewed as racist mm-hmm. in Canada. It's, it's really, it just boggles my mind because um, 
I just, I don't understand why it, it's, uh, it's attached that label. Um, and I did talk about that itself and how, what the definition of racism is like. It's not just discrimination. There's no such thing as reverse racism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's like there's, the all lives sorry, matter, like Black Lives Matter, and then suddenly there's this all lives matter. It's like, well, no, like, yeah, you know. because racism is imbued with power. It's it's a power. It's it's historical. It's contemporary. It's ongoing. It's inequity. So, anyways, um, as we were engaging in the roundtable discussion, um. It was really interesting because one of the staff members says, "Oh, but we don't have a race. We don't have racism in the school. There's no racism here. Like, why are we talking about this basically?" And so I had to say, "I'm sorry, but that is actually impossible. Um, it's actually impossible. Consider that the school is built on land that is that that was stolen, that was taken away. Um, that itself, the actual <laughs> origins of, the, of 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 us being here, was profoundly a racist act." and our continued presence. But not only that, when you think about the structural and historic, think about the fact that you are a white teacher in a school with majority indigenous students. If I'm going to ask whether or not there's racism in a school, I wouldn't ask you. <laughs> I'm going to ask the students, yeah. the students, that they, they, they would be able to tell me because you might not recognize it because racism isn't always shouting out, um, you know, the N-word or, do you know what I mean? All of these violent acts and these extreme acts that we associate it with, right? Yeah, well, oppression and racism is has to be in the eyes of the oppressed or the marginalized or the people. It's called up and down power in the race power framework. Um, and it's not all power and no power. It's not good or bad. It just describes the dynamic. And as someone, you know, I walk around the world with lots of power. Let's face it, middle-aged white guy, well-educated, mm -hmm. speak English, like saturated from like my membership gives me lots of power. Um, and I can't tell when I'm accidentally like the line, I think between patriarchy and paternalism, like paternalism versus like marginalization is such a thin line. And I've had some interesting experiences and conversations with, you know, healthcare professionals, largely male, largely in positions of power who, mm -hmm. you know, see themselves again, the intention is to be caring and to kind of use their power well, but the experience on the other side of the table is anything but right. It's, it's, it's really is marginalization. And, Sometimes we just can't tell, right? I think we usually can tell. I think the signs are there if we actually open our eyes and, and listen for it and look for it. You know, certainly my, I've gotten better at it over the years of spotting my unintentional impacts on people. Mm -hmm. But just because they're unintentional doesn't mean I don't have ownership over them. And I think that that's yeah. the piece for, you know, educators. I spend a lot of time in classrooms as well. And you're right, like no educator is going to say I'm racist, but you're part of a racist structure. You're part of a racist system. Mm -hmm that by its very design um, is oppressive. And so you, you can be a shareholder in the company. You don't have to lead the company. You don't have to be the CEO of Oppression Incorporated, but you benefit yeah. from it. Um, so it's interesting that those conversations are are happening in, that, in the context that you're finding yourself in. Yeah, and it's interesting because what happens often the time is that I always like, and I, I, I would draw on also Paul Gorski's work mm. uh, in those sessions. He's been on the podcast. Yeah, he's uh, he's brilliant. I, I saw that. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I uh, I saw it and I was excited because I can't wait. Um, he actually talks about um, the detours, the racial equity detours, and I really draw on his that work of his because I talk about how um, when we talk about you know we are not racist. There's no racism problem. You know, that's a detour. Mm -hmm. That is actually getting in the way of the work that needs to be done. And so how, instead of saying there's no racism here, how might racism actually manifest itself in these places? How might, how, what are students telling us about this? You know, what are families saying about this? What are the people around, you know, people who don't have the same power that I have? You know, how are they viewing and feeling and experiencing this world? Mm -hmm. Um, because when you talk about intent or, uh, uh, intent being always centered, I would say, and I said that even in this session was, was you actually might have every good intention in the world. And I'm, we're, and so like, just like Chimamanda Ngochi, uh, uh, did she says is she doesn't, she, it's not that single stories are only, you know, white people, like white people single story mean others. No, we all have a capacity to single story, but single story is different than racism. Racism has a very specific meaning and it's very specifically tied to power. Mm -hmm. And so I always bring it back to bring, so with the intention, you have to think about, okay, I might have intended this, 
but how are other people experiencing it? People who actually don't have the same level of power that I have. And so that's what we need to center. I'm not centering your guilt. I'm not centering your defensiveness. I, we, we, we've done that for too long. Mm-hmm. We need to center the experiences and the stories of those who are most impacted by um, these profoundly inequitable structures and practices. So that's where we need to move to. Um, and so for the, thankfully, a lot of people do resonate with that, but there are people who just, for whatever reason, it's, it's just too, it's too um, they have this sense of defensiveness that for whatever reason, it can, we can't move beyond, um, especially in one session. Yeah. There's no way that I'm not I'm going to be able to to you know make everybody see what I'm I'm trying to and hear what I'm trying to say. Yeah, right? I've I've stopped doing single sessions actually largely like one day PD sessions in education in particular. It's like this is not enough time to have the the type of conversation that this topic demands, and it's actually it's another checklist. Right? Let's talk about power for half a day. It's like actually that's a a bigger topic. It's almost impossible. And so that's why also with the same group, I'm actually going again oh, next month. And so, and I'm focusing and really centering on the racial equity detours at mm-hmm. like this time. Because I started with Chimamanda Ngochi's single story, and now I'm going on to that. Hopefully by the end of the, the school year, I'll be back one more time. Um, because it's, it's conversations that need to be ongoing. I, it's just, and I, and I actually told some of the administrators that even when I'm not there, it shouldn't only be somebody parachuting into your school site mm-hmm. uh, to teach you about racism. Like I can help you to get the conversation started, but it really needs you to take ownership um, and to really engage in this work and learn, you know, because if we really value something, uh, and I tell this to the students in my class, if you really value something, anything we really value, we make sure to learn more about. Yeah. Um, it doesn't need somebody to come in and teach me. So if you're really valuing this and you feel this is super important, learn, like seek out that knowledge and keep going. Yeah. Uh, it can't be somebody just kind of coming and handing it to you all the time. And I really am very um, open about that as well. Mm-hmm. Can we shift gears a little bit? I'm curious about what, br- what brought you into this line of work. Like, how did you find yourself writing about these things, teaching about these things? Um, like of all the things we could do in the world, I'm always curious as to why, why we choose to, to do these things. Okay, so I, I was born and raised here in Edmonton, and um, obviously, as a Palestinian Muslim woman, um, even before I wore hijab, I didn't wear hijab till I was twenty or twenty-three. Um, but I experienced a lot, and and you have this sense, and it's interesting because sometimes our embodied knowing is so ignored in in any space, actually, in all spaces. But even we ignore it. So we have. I always had this sense of when people were treating me different, or were just almost refusing to acknowledge me as an equal. And so students and, and children and youth know it. They know when this is happening. Their body tells them, even if they can't really articulate that that's what's happening. And so I always have that sense. And so a lot of my, my um, even when I go back to some of my school assignments, a lot of it was um, really centered on racism and discrimination and um, later on Islamophobia. Um, but then when I was, in, uh, when I was teaching, I started to get the sense, and so I was at an Edmonton Islamic, uh, it was a private school. Uh, and the reason why I taught there is not because I don't value public schools, because I think public schools are, are, are where we need to focus our, our time, money, and energy. But the problem with that is that there was no alternative program for those who wanted to really learn about uh, Islam and their heritage and the Arabic in the same way, in that, in that uh, profoundly threaded way. Now they're starting to open up in, in the public school system here, so... I believe that that's where where movement goes forward. But when I was in those in those uh, classrooms, I started to get the sense profoundly because this is a post nine uh, eleven world. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, you know, I, I I was I grew up and it was that yes, there was instances and events and uh, horrific terrorism, but not in the same way. So I started to get the sense that students were internalizing many of the stories about them. Mm-hmm. It was actually heartbreaking to hear some of the things that they had to say about what others think of, of Muslims and, and who we are. And so the, already I knew that that's something that needed to be explored um, about the stories of who we are and how that actually gets internalized. Um, so I went in to do my master's, um, my master's work, and then um, I just got hooked. I felt like there wasn't, and the reason why actually is because there were a few writers about Muslim uh, 
A lot of them weren't Muslim. And so I felt like, yes, they were trying to contribute. And I'm not saying they can't contribute. But I don't. I just felt like there was so much knowing from within the community that wasn't being brought out in, in some of these studies. It was really cut and dry and almost soulless in some cases. And so I felt like I needed to contribute as much as I can towards that. And so that's why I continued on to my PhD and, and, and I continued on with this work because I, felt, I, I truly feel like there's so much um, pain. There's so much pain involved for everyone mm-hmm. you know, because of all of the horrific, um, the violence that's been brought upon everybody, but also the fact that so many of us have internalized these stories of who we are. Um, and, and we get attacked for it regularly too. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, even me on Twitter right now, like there's any time I, I bring up anything related to Islam or even hijab or anything, I do. I get a lot of hate. There's a barrage. And so how do you counter that? How do you not allow that to seep into your own um, stories of self, right? Yeah, uh, especially when you're a child and youth, mm-hmm. right? I'm curious about how you're dealing with that. Like how do you, do you respond? Do you ignore? Do you... Like, what's your your current preferred method of dealing with the online hate? Because it's certainly, um, certainly, it seems like it's an aspect of our world this that isn't going anywhere, yeah. and unfortunately, very quickly. But um, I'm always curious about how practitioners deal with uh, deal with it. So when I first started, I see I didn't know the rules of Twitter very well. Very well. <laughs> <laughs> so at first, I would I would respond and say, "What do you you know? Why are you saying that?" And I I would respond genuinely, like. You don't know me. You don't know my stories. Why would you? Why would you even say this? And then later, I realized that obviously, there's not people. A lot of people aren't there to engage in genuine ways, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not there to actually have a conversation, a dialogue. They're there to um, to disrupt a lot of the time, or to just demean. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that um, I can't spend my energy there. I can't. Like my work and my energy needs to be a focus on my family and my my work alongside people who need that energy and that time. So that's why I've started to just, for the most part, report and block, unless it's it's really something that this person should not be on this platform, I will then uh, direct uh, others to, to help to report and block them mm-hmm. as well. Because, um, yeah, it, it, we can't do the work alone. Like that is where I can, you know, provide a screenshot or, or something and say, let's get this person off of here. This is this is really disgusting and they should not be on this platform with this kind of hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, I've just learned to just... Under- Here's the thing, and it's really sad to say this, but because I've dealt with it so often in my life, even in, pers- in real life, uh, it doesn't really affect me in the same way that it might somebody who do- isn't used to it. Mm-hmm. And it's sad to say that I, it's, I, it's now almost become normal for me mm-hmm. to have to deal with it. Um, that I've, I've built up a lot of, you know, um, strategies to just continue on with my life because I can't, I can't center other people's ignorance and hate. I have to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thankfully it doesn't really affect me in this, like maybe it does. It's, yeah, it's going to be hurtful in the, in, when you first read something and go, whoa. Mm-hmm. But then I just continue and move forward because thankfully I have so much love and I have so much compassion from so many people around me. Um, that that's not what I choose to, to center as often as possible. Yeah, no, I think that's that's probably that's pretty good advice. I think all of us could do do well to recognize the the other side of the coin, the love and compassion, like you say, and the support that is available. And I think it's easy to get drawn. Like um, we often talked about problem saturated stories versus hope centered stories or solution oriented stories, and we would always, you know, it's easy to spot problems. If you're a problem spotter, you can go out into the world and spot tons and tons of oh, problems. Yeah. Um, it's harder often to be like, oh, that thing is happening and that's going really well. And that's a, that's a positive. So I'm always curious about the positives, the wins. Um, so can you, do you have an example or, you know, work that you've done where you felt like that was a, that was a win. We moved the needle on maybe an issue around, you know, something structural in a school or a perspective with a group of students or, you know, um, even on Twitter connections that you've made that have resulted in um, that, that positive story, that hopeful kind of narrative. 
well, you, well, right now being on this podcast is, is an example for me of, of something positive that comes out of it. And so that's what's, what's so interesting is that um, even with with a lot of the, the negativity and the and just the, the hate sometimes that you'll encounter like in online spaces specifically, I'm actually writing a story. Um, sorry, um, a story, of course, but an article alongside um, Daniel Kratka, who's also a professor, and he talks about digital spaces. So we're actually writing a paper about this, about how do we, you know, in this work, how do we do this in ways that are also, um, also problematizes some of these violent spaces, uh, online spaces, right? Um, and what, what, what that's asking of us and what's demanding of us. So that's another great um, example. Um, I've made so many connections and people have, I've, I've been invited to zoom in with, in classrooms in Australia and in other parts of Canada and, and even in the States. And so, so many people thankfully have, have gotten to know me in my work. And so some of those stories and some of the research that I'm, I'm conducting is actually um, thankfully being, um, being introduced in other spaces that I never imagined. Mm -hmm. um, so that's amazing. And then even in my own classrooms, um, you know, it's interesting because when I first started uh, teaching in uh, post-secondary settings, I was really worried. And I, and I was really worried about the fact that I don't know that many students have ever had a hijabi instructor. Uh, and so I wondered about how um, that would be received by many students. Um, and so thankfully, thankfully, um, Maybe the first day or two, I think it is a little bit like, oh, what is what is happening here? Uh, you could almost be not the stereotypical say, university professor. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and so it was. It's interesting because I you could see it in some in some expressions. Like I'm not sure what is happening right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, um, what I think happens is because I am a lot of the time, thankfully, but I can I'm humorous. I'm I'm really irreverent. Um, I, I just kind of, I tell the truth, but unapologetically what I think, but I also, again, I engage with humor and, and, and compassion and hopefully people understand that I'm not uh, somebody who's going to, um, be oppressive towards them mm -hmm. or, or to judge them because I, the whole point of being a teacher, I think is to move. Um, and I always say education and for me is always about personal and social growth. Mm -hmm. It's about personal and social growth. So how are we, it's not just about teaching others. It's about also learning from others and from and with them. Mm -hmm. So how, do, how, how, how are we engaging? And so I try to model this. And I have my three H's of teaching, which is to be humane, humble, and hopeful mm -hmm. at all times. Um, and so, and I, t I share that with students to say, um, we don't know everything. It's good to learn, uh, we, but we do have knowledge you know, that will help to move us, to move ourselves and others and society in general forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah, I feel like even with these stories of um, that could block any type of relationship, that could provide almost borders between me and students or me and others, um, I feel like there's a lot of good, a lot of good in the world that we don't recognize all the time. Um, and so that's where I choose to focus. Because if I'm going to focus on only all that's awful, um, it's, it's all, the, the only thing that does is going to make me um, lose all hope. And I refuse to engage in that way. Um, I think that there's another, like one, somebody else, and I really recommend for you to um, look into her work, um, Catherine Van Kessel. She's, um, she's known as Dr. Evil on, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I love her because... She talks about um, what's known as everyday evil and it, the hard knowledge that we are all capable of doing things that are awful. And so um, she, she really draws on the work of Hannah Arendt and, she, what ter and, and psychoanalytic terror management theory. And I've been really um, also grappling with her work because um, and she's a dear friend of mine, but I really think that how do we grapple with these harder truths in ways that don't, we don't lose hope. We don't lose uh, the ability to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. Where we acknowledge that we're implicated in so many of these stories, but that we also have the ability for profound love and radical love. So 
um, it's, it's, there's no answer. Mm-hmm. It's always an ongoing dialogue. Um, but it's really good for, in my, in my opinion, to keep that in mind, to keep in mind that there is a lot of good in the world and that there's a lot of good people mm-hmm. and to, to really make those connections and keep, keep ourselves kind of almost afloat with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, I, I love those three H's and I'm going to, uh, reflect on those humane, humble, and hopeful. That's a, yes. that's a, that's a great handrail, I think for, anyone who's doing the kind of work um, that you're doing or, you know, in the helping professions or just leadership or life in general. I think those are, uh, you can't do wrong with those types of values. Um, You know, one thing that's been super helpful for me in kind of addressing the underlying power dynamics in relationships is, is called the billion dollar question. My friend, Stephen DeGroote out of Winnipeg, he's a consultant coach guy. And he said, the billion dollar question is, what do I know about this? Whatever this is, right? What do I know about this? from their experience or their perspective. And inevitably when I actually stop and ask myself that question, I'm like, I actually have no idea what their experience is, <laughs> right? Their experience yeah. of me in this moment, their experience of themselves in this moment. I haven't made the space and that's a pause button for me. That question, I probably ask it a dozen times a day. You know, what do I know about my eight year old not wanting to go to bed at eight thirty from his perspective? Nothing. Oh, okay. Maybe I should shut up and listen and see, you know, if there's something there that he wants to talk about. Yeah. Parenting is the laboratory for me for power dynamics. Uh, <laughs> I think that that's, yeah. it makes a lot of sense because well, it is. It, that's it's all it is. Right? Like it's, it's, uh, and it's, it's power dynamics and it's the most intense relationships I think that we'll have is with, with our family, like with our loved ones, um, because we care so deeply. Um, and that's what I would see often. And we do family therapy in, uh, it was addictions treatment for youth, but it was, you know, a family centered mm-hmm. program. Um, and we would hear these narratives. We'd hear these single stories, like you say, from the teenager's perspective about their dad and dad is, you know, super controlling, demanding, whatever, you know, adjectives a teenager would use to describe their overbearing parent. Um, And you get in the room with the parent and within a few minutes, the love and care is so evident, but the fear is also what Mm -hmm. tends to be driving the behavior. Um, And so when you recognize that all behavior makes sense and it happens for a reason, you know, that's also been helpful for me. It's like, this has to make sense. And if it doesn't make sense to me, it means I just haven't stopped and asked myself or haven't created space for their perspective to be centered. In the, in the conversation, I'm centering yeah. my own values, my own needs, my own, you know, my own biases and perspectives. Um, and so that's been, you know, that, that's, that's the journey of using our power well, I think, is our ability to yeah. stop ourselves and ask that question and realize that we don't have the answer and being okay with that and being okay. Yeah. Like, that's the hard part. You know, full disclosure as a parent, that's the hardest part when you have an outcome in mind. And it's like this, your life would be easier if you just did this thing. And so how can I push you in that direction? But um, we know that that doesn't work. You know, carrots and sticks. Well, yeah. Type motivation. My eldest is turning 17 years old oh, in a couple of months. You're a decade ahead yeah. of me, so uh, I have lots to learn. <laughs> so yeah, because I she's 17, and then um, my uh, middle child, he's 14, and uh, then there's my bio, who's uh, six. And um, what uh, my my eldest, um, she was actually the person who prompted my my research hmm. because. Um, what happened is we were driving, well, I was driving, uh, uh, and she was around 10, 11 years old, and there was a bus with that was with an ad that was prompted by a hate group mm. that was promoted and paid for by a hate group talking about Muslim women, and it has a cover of some women, and it says something about Sharia law. I don't even remember the ad, but I remember her looking at me and saying, what is that? And so my fear, <coughs> sorry, as a parent, in that moment was what are the stories that she's going to internalize about herself here mm-hmm. so that's what prompted the research alongside Muslim mothers and daughters mm-hmm. and now <coughs> sorry but now as she turns 17 soon um the fears are obviously also about okay you know how is she going to be in this world how is she going to who how who what kind of stories is she interacting with what kind of people are going to try to you know what i mean all of these stories about you know, especially for for girls, um, you know, transitioning into womanhood. Mm-hmm. And so that is very, very resonant for me because the fears of, um, the fear-based parenting for me is something I always have to catch myself with and to stop myself and to think about, okay, how, like, just like I can't engage with fear in this world, I can engage with fear as a parent and, and, and 
have that kind of role the way that I engage um, with, my, with my kiddos. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that because it is definitely something that um, resonates. Yeah, fear versus hope. Like I think there's room for one to be at the at the steering wheel at any given time, and it's you know for me it's just being aware of that, like that awareness piece, and you know from a again to bring it back to power, right? Use of power, that awareness of power like actually being Mm -hmm. able to feel it and see it, that felt experience. And like you say, you know, unwiring a little bit of our own power histories. Like we all have a power history. We all get to this point in time and it's like, it's a combination of how I was parented, interactions I had with teachers and coaches and professors, people with power in my life. And a lot of us have, you know, either generally a positive association with power or generally a negative association with power based on that experience, based on that history. And interestingly, and I'd be curious to see if, this resonates with you or if it matches your experience, but I find a lot of helping professionals, educators, um, healthcare workers actually have a bit of a negative bias towards power, like a, a leaning away from power because of dealing with, you know, especially maybe it's addiction to mental health. We would deal with traumatized people all the time. And so we would see the abuses of power that other people had experienced and we'd be so careful not to replicate it that we would often shy away from power and we wouldn't recognize the power that we had and we wouldn't step into it fully. And we were doing a disservice to students or clients or patients or, you know, whatever the context was because of that unwillingness, because of that negative bias towards power, um, which is inherently just neutral. Like power is just the ability to affect change in the world. Mm -hmm. It could be good or bad, depending on, you know, the eye of the beholder again. Um, Does that resonate at all? Or does that match your peer experience or what's your take on that? Yes, actually it does because I think about, okay, so the helping professions and the the caring professions in general, it's it's, um, associated with quote unquote woman's work. And so it's going to be, uh, for a lot of time, it, it was, you know, for nursing, for education, for many of these professions, it's been women, um, kind of at the helm and, 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 um, or, you know, workers in that, in those professions. Um, and the thing with, with a lot of us, I think, is that, um, for women in general, being seen as, and this is obviously in the literature as well, is that being seen as too strident, as too assertive, um, Obviously, there's been stories about, there's stories upon stories of that, being a quote-unquote nasty woman. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there is that lean away from it a lot of the time, that, uh, that um, no, that's not me. And so, it does resonate for me that that also then means that, although we have, again, great intentions, um, and we know, we know that we're dealing with human beings and that our, our work is profoundly about caring for one another um, because of that lean away we don't interrogate our positionality very often mm-hmm. we don't interrogate what are the the larger stories at play here very often and so that is some some work that um, I think is important work it's vital to the work that we do because if it's just about um, of course the interpersonal relationship is important and but what are the stories I'm bringing to this relationship what are the stories living in me? The, the social stories, the, the the stories of what is a good, for example, patient, student. Um, who, who am I in this moment? Who is this person in this moment? What stories do they bring? Mm-hmm. Because every interaction is is a, is is, a, is a overlapping of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of um, even, um, and I think of actually Dr. Kristen Duncan. She just it was a tweet she had, but it really got me thinking. And she did. She's she said something like um, that the only uh, only those without power, like those without power, um, know what it what it feels like not to have it. Mm-hmm. No, can are the only ones who can identify what it looks like. Something mm-hmm. like that, um, and it, that really resonates because, um, like you said, to be able to look at from, from another's perspective. And I think of Maria Lagones' work about something called world traveling. And this idea of world traveling is this ability to literally try to um, engage with someone as if I can, I, I'm in their world. Um, I'm able to kind of see from their vantage point as much as possible. We can never truly know the experiences of another, mm-hmm. but to be able to try at least in loving ways and not in ways that are trying to control what that should look like for them, mm-hmm. because that's just another way of colonizing mm-hmm. them and their world. Um, and so I, I, I think that that's something that we need to do more often, which is, again, to interrogate these, these, these sometimes the, the smallest moment 
is so imbued with power and, and so imbued with power differentials. Um, and if we can interrogate some of those interactions, some of those really small moments and, and say, what is at play here? What is not like not being said? What are the stories that are not being um, explicitly uh, addressed here? I think that we can do ourselves and, and our professions um, just a great service, to be honest, in terms of um, just the awareness and being more wakeful to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm going to have to read some of these authors. I'm going to have to, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure to include them in the show notes for sure. Um, it's really interesting, you know, and I'm curious about, you know, a year ago when you first stepped onto Twitter. So you've published your book, mm-hmm. you're stepping into Twitter, and you'd mentioned right off the right off the top about some anxiety and some depression, some things that have been a part of your story, and introvert. And mm-hmm. I'm an introvert by, you know, probably by heritage. It's been an interesting journey to step out of that in, in front of people. Um, what made that possible for you? Or what contributed to that that shift because i mean that's a step into personal power so we've talked about types of power from a race power framework we have personal power we have role power which is the Mm -hmm. you know that power differential you know articulated teacher student dynamic that is very obviously a role that each of them play Mm -hmm. Uh, i talked about status power already which is the membership that we have that's you know i'm a white caucasian like male english speaking like that just comes with me wherever i go i don't have to be very aware of it right? Because it's, it mm-hmm. gives me power. I would only be aware of it if I, if I was on the other side, if I was on down power position. Um, so I'm curious about, cause any moment to moment ability to affect change in our lives is an intersection of those, all of those powers are kind of at play simultaneously. Um, so what, what gave the confidence or the courage or the, the hopefulness to step out into something like Twitter and start finding a voice mm-hmm. there? Um, and what's that just a little reflection on that experience. Well, it's interesting. Thank you for that question because I actually have been really <laughs> questioning myself, like, <laughs> what is happening? What? Who am I? <laughs> really? But I think that it was um, a, a like just so multi-layered and as a response to that because I think there was um, the fact that I took the took the step of actually um, applying for these positions that I never thought I would get mm. or these awards that I never thought I would get. Um, and it was because of my depression and anxiety, like the negative kind of self-talk that just was so much a part of who I am too over the years. Like even what, no matter what I did and no matter what I accomplished, I never could recognize it. It was something that was great. Mm. And that is just something I've really had to work towards to, that it's to acknowledge that this, this work it's acknowledging this great work is not being, um, you know what I mean? Um, arrogant. Mm-hmm. And cause I was always that part of it. The humble part is, is important, mm-hmm. but also to acknowledge your own worth and to, to acknowledge your own, um, work is important as well. Right. So that's something that I've had to really just grab hold of and, and really own. Um, and so to, when I was finishing up my PhD, um, there was a lot of um, heartbreak. So one of my cousins, uh, Bilal, he passed away from cancer and he was a brother to me. Uh, he was not, he was only a few years older than I am. And then my grandmother, just one of the, the brightest lights in my life, also passed away. So within a very relatively short time. And so just this, this ability to then say, okay, how do I use, you know, this time that I have to affect change in the best way possible because I think that that kind of woke me up to the fact that we need to, to move the, move every myself and everybody else around me forward in, in good ways as much as possible. So that really, really was one of the big parts. But then also um, when I started teaching at the post-secondary level for the first time, because I never did that before, even during my PhD pr- uh, program, because I'm a mom and there was so much going on in our lives that I, I chose to do a research assistantship rather than a teaching assistantship, which is the teaching would be the grad level teaching and the research because I could do that more on my time. Mm-hmm. But then when I finally started uh, my first time that I was an instructor, and this is before I got my full-time position, I was just a wreck. I thought, I don't know that I could do this. Uh, <laughs> I'm a teacher, but what if they think that, you know, and so all of these words. But then it was so interesting because um, within a few days, 
I just had some wonderful responses from students and telling me how much they valued my opinion and my voice and my the way I'm engaging with them. And so just having that affirmation that you're doing things um, that is really resonating with people um, was huge to my self-confidence. And then I, when I applied and I thought I did get, end up getting a position that I never thought I would get, <laughs> that was another thing. It's just this, uh, this for me, it was thinking, I can't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and then, and then just getting affirmed in that way. So I think all of these things, um, even for example, being told that my dissertation wasn't as quote unquote robust because it was more like a story. Because it is narrative based research. Mm-hmm. But then getting a major dissertation award because of it, um, which I, well, I was shocked at, to be honest. Um, but then I look and then I think, well, why am I shocked? Like these are the stories that people are planting in me that I'm internalizing, right? So all of these things, um, for me, it was just just teaching me to not undervalue myself and my voice and my story and, and my work. And that's ongo- an, an ongoing challenge for me because I do, I still struggle with uh, depression and anxiety. And thankfully, I do get help um, and professional help. And, and I'm able to, um, hopefully, I'm, I'm better able to um, identify when I'm, I'm selling myself short, mm-hmm. when I'm telling myself things that really are more indicative of the things that um, I worry others will say. Other remnants of other people's stories, right? Like they're, exactly. it's interesting when you, when you talk about um, your experience kind of stepping into higher ed and some of these places, you know, our, our stories are really co-created, right? We are, we don't know if we're funny unless someone laughs at our jokes. Right. And so it's, it's one of those, like, it's an interesting dynamic where it's, you know, we experience ourselves in that inter- intersectional space between in relationship with other people. And, Sometimes we take on too much of somebody else's narrative. Sometimes we don't fully step into ours, but it's, it, that's the, that's an interesting dynamic. And that was, you know, a lot of the work we were doing in addiction and mental health was about dismantling those single stories of self that had been placed there by other people in their lives, whether it was a teacher or a parent or a, who knows what the media, um, there's lots of that. So it's a, yeah, it's an interesting conversation that we could, we could spend a lot more time on. I'm sure. <laughs> you remind me of Ben Oakley's work. Um, if you don't mind me um, bringing this up, yeah, it's, um, sure. I, I use this in my work quite a bit, and it's just uh, it's beautiful. So uh, it would be a great thing, I think, to um, I know that we're probably nearing the end of our time, but I really love this uh, this quote because I use it um, so often in my work, and it's uh, he, he writes how one way or another we are having we are living the stories planted in us earlier or along the way. Or we are also living the stories we planted knowingly or unknowingly in ourselves. And so, as a again, as a narrative inquirer, just as a human being, I think about, and I tell students this, um, there's every part and in every interaction and in every setting that we're in, it's so deeply and profoundly storied. Um, there's the individual personal stories, the social stories, the institutional stories, just the stories I live by, the ones that I'm kind of engaging with. Um, so if you're looking at life as profoundly storied, um, I think it's a different way of, of, of being hopeful, to be honest, because if these stories have been created, they could be deconstructed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's how I try to engage in my work as well. Yeah. Well, that's a, I think that's a wonderful way to close this conversation off. Cause I, I do fear that we could probably talk the rest of the afternoon and this, will be a <laughs> yeah. uh, but maybe I can have you back on again sometime in the future and we can dig in a little bit further. So, um, Dr. Sella, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for your time for listening to Dr. Sella and I unpack some of these important topics like the danger of a single story and digging beneath the layers of some of the structural issues and inequalities that exist in our society and in our systems. Uh, You can find her, just scroll down and check out the show notes. There's links to her Twitter account. I highly recommend giving her a follow, as well as checking out some of the work that she's been doing and some of the different authors that she mentioned. Again, this is Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard. You can learn more about me at www.jeffcoulard.com. And don't forget to grab your copy of The Ultimate Guide to Gratitude. This month has been Gratitude Month around here, and I'd like to share this with you. So text the word POWERFUL to 1-855-969-5300, and I will email you the PDF right away. 
Awesome. Have a wonderful week and we will see you soon.